Bibles to uh, Philippians chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 1 today. But remember, the book of Philippians doesn't really start in the book of Philippians. It starts in Acts chapter 16. And so we have gone through and looked at uh, Paul and Silas and their, uh, their strategy of going into a city and, and finding the Jewish synagogue and sharing the gospel there, explaining how Jesus fulfilled ministry. And so when they had gotten to Philippi that there was no Jewish synagogue and they had to change their strategy. They had to do a different plan. And so then they were eventually arrested and then they were, uh, you know, we had the earthquake and the jailer and, and their act of compassion toward him and then they left, uh, they went out and they visited Lydia, one of the uh, th of three families that they were able to share the gospel with that came to know Christ that we know about during that early stages in Acts chapter 16, they go back and they visit Lydia and then they leave. So Paul and Silas, they go off to start other churches and they leave behind Lydia and her family, a teenage girl that was demon-possessed, so just a teenage girl, and the jailer and his family. And that was the church that we see in Acts chapter 16. That was the launch of this church. And so by the time we get to Philippians chapter 1, 12 years have passed. And in that time, uh, that group, that small group, has shared the gospel, they've shared their story, and the church has grown and grown and grown. And we don't know exactly how large it is or how many people we're talking, but it's large enough to where they've got elders and they've got deacons and they've got people called saints, which we're going to look at. It's a group. It's, it's a church that has been established. And so now Paul, we're going to see, he's in prison again. Uh, and he's been in prison for over two years at this point. He now writes the church. And this is the letter that we have, is this letter that he sends back to the church at Philippi. So before we jump into it, let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the, of what it means to us. And Lord, we see it as our source of authority. We see it as uh, our foundation. And so Lord, this morning as we seek to study it and we seek to, to learn it, Lord, we pray that you will help us to apply it to our lives so that when we leave today, Lord, we will have things that we can immediately apply to our lives that will make us more like your son. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you look in Philippians chapter 1, starting with verse 1, it says this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, in this day, if you were to write a letter, it's very typical to include who it's from. So you have it's from Paul and Timothy. But you also would include uh, the usual, in, uh, Paul would usually include the fact of, of his, he's an apostle, or he would include the fact of, of his authority, his, his source of authority. So it's coming from Paul the apostle. But here we don't see that. Paul usually introduces himself that way, but here he doesn't. He uses the same title for himself and Timothy and they are worked together uh, was that of a slave literally a servant of God and so he in the very beginning of this book is he's coming he's showing us that he sees himself as a servant and so Paul and Timothy are not free to do what they wanted to do they are servants of Christ they are servants of Jesus and they were subject to the claims of the one who owned them 
So they, they say, I am a servant, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. And because he owns me, he tells me what to do. And Jesus' claim was that he was God, he was the Lord. And if, the, if that claim is true, which they believe that it is, then we are also, and if we believe that, we are also servants of God. And so if you say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, we, like Paul, immediately admit and understand that we are servants we are slaves of Jesus there was a poet named William Ernest Henley he once wrote I am the master of my fate I am the captain of my soul I decide what I do I decide where I go I decide my life but really no matter how much you may think you are in charge of your life most of us are not right we uh, desire to avoid pain or achieve gain by pleasing or placating some Lord or the other right there are Lords out there that we voluntarily put ourselves under we don't want to experience pain we want to have food to eat and so the master you serve may be success it may be money it may be what money can buy it might be affection of other people it might be romance it might be reputation it might be respect all of these are Lords that we bow the knee to and we say Yes, I will do what it takes. I will do what you tell me in order to accomplish what I want. You may be enslaved by other people's opinions. You might be terrified at the prospect of being rejected in some way or ridiculed. Or perhaps you don't want to be left all alone in your life. And so you do what you need to do. You bow the knee to whatever that Lord might be so that you can accomplish these things. Moses, David, Joshua, all of the great men and women of old in the Bible are servants. They're slaves of the Most High God. You have to admit, you have to submit yourself to something in this life. You have to bow the knee to something. We all do it. The rulers of this world are going to use you. They're going to disregard you. And when they are finished with you, they're going to cast you aside. That's the rulers of this world. You bow the knee to those rulers of this world, that is the ultimate of what will happen to you. However, if you bow the knee to King Jesus, if you bow to him and you say, he is my Lord, you, you are his servant, he considers you a brother and sister. Look in Mark chapter 10, he says, for even the Son of Man cannot, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus Christ came, he became a servant. He leads us. He led us as what it means to be a follower of Christ as he set the example of being a servant. And so we bow the knee to him. And the Lord honors the slave's role by assuming the form of a human being, right? He came from heaven. He took on human flesh and became a servant of mankind. He's the, he is a, a servant in what he does. And so believers receive this claim of Jesus. I am a follower. And you say, he is Lord then all of us as believers are on the same level as being servants you're a servant I'm a servant people you're sitting next to if they're a follower of Jesus Christ they are a slave of Christ Paul and Timothy are servants side by side each doing what God has called them to do and any other Christians who say that they believe in the claim of Jesus is Lord there's no hierarchy here it's not like some above Christians and some lower Christians. We're all just servants of the Most High God. Paul refers himself to Timothy. He says, we are servants of the Lord. 
fellow servants serving as we have all been gifted and calling. God's called me to do this. God's gifted me to do this. As his servant, that's what I'm doing. 400 years. Let's do a little bit of history about Philippi before we jump into it. Because I think it kind of helps us understand what's going on in the story, especially as we progress into it. The city of Philippi was founded by uh, Alexander the Great's dad, Philip the second Philip the Great right and so uh, there was this famous battle that happened and uh, the veterans of that army were rewarded for their victory in battle by this town being established for them and so they retired to this community so think of it as like Miami uh, or uh, Florida for the country right so this is a this is a retirement uh, colony for these retired soldiers after they've won the battle uh, they were rewarded by this and so 400 years later we have the establishment of this church so in the church in Philippi there had been some arguing and some fighting thank goodness that doesn't happen in churches today right at that time but some believers were struggling with pride they're struggling with arrogance it had caused a strong division within the church, and so Paul gets wind of this. Paul is in prison in Rome. He gets, he under, he gets wind of what's going on in Philippi. He feels the need to sit down and write this letter. And so Paul directs his opening greetings to the leaders, the overseers, and the deacons, because more than likely, they're going to be the ones they are going to help fix this problem of the division and arguing that's going on. And it might even be them that's the one that's arguing. And so Paul refers to himself and Timothy as servants of Jesus Christ and then he references the saints which is the church at Philippi and then their leaders deacons and overseers but these leaders are not over the church look at what it says it says with the overseers and deacons the church as a whole are all in this together as servants of the Most High God there's not some that serve and some that don't and not some that are over and tell others what to do and then they have to do it as though they're not both serving. Everyone is serving, is what he's emphasizing here. We're going to see that pride and arrogance and division was tearing this church apart. Paul, in these opening remarks, is saying, We are all, whether it be apostles, saints, church members, pastors, deacons, etc., everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ that's a part of this church are all servants of the Lord which means Jesus comes first in everyone's life if you're a follower of Jesus Jesus comes first if you say I'm a Christian that means Jesus comes first that means that he you are saying I am a servant of God God's Word says this I don't have an option I'm, I do it I'm a slave I'm a servant servants don't go I'm not gonna do that but I'll do this that's, that's not how it works it says, to all the saints of Christ Jesus. There's this common bond between Christians. The believer gives himself up, his own life, to Christ, the, and then possesses the life of Christ in himself. He is in Christ, and Christ is in him. He is dead with Christ. Christ becomes alive in his life. The Christian says, I'm going to die to myself, I'm going to live for Christ. He says, the saints. He's writing to the saints. A saint 
is a term that describes a person of purity, a person that has the privilege of standing before God. If you're a saint, you get to stand before God. But how do sinners become pure? How do sinners have the ability to stand in the presence of God? To help us understand this idea, I'd like for us to go to Exodus chapter 3. This is the story of, of Moses, and he is out tending his sheep. He's a shepherd, and he's walking out there in the wilderness, and he looks across, and he sees a bush that was burning, but it was not consumed, and it caught his attention. And look what it says. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. And then he said, do not come near. Take off your sandals of your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. How is it that over here, while Moses is walking, this is not holy ground, but then suddenly I walk 10 feet over here, and now this is holy ground. What is the difference between this ground and dirt and this ground and dirt? What is the difference? It was God's presence that made the ground holy. It was God's presence in the life of a believer that makes the person pure or holy or a saint. Not your own actions. It's not how good we're living. It's not how, how many things we're doing, how many things on the checklist, good things we could check off. It's not about that. It's about God's presence in our life. And so, when there is submission to the Lord, and we humble ourselves before Him, and we experience grace, this unmerited favor, and peace comes from our being forgiven of our sin, that we might be right with our Creator. Look what it says when He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. The believer is a person who's put their faith in Jesus Christ. He's taken up residence. He's a part of who they are. He's on the inside. He guides them. They, they're considered a saint and made holy. They, they put their faith in Jesus Christ. Then he, and then we have this grace. We have this peace that only happens through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul included this phrase in every one of his, gospel, in his epistles, right? Grace and peace to you. Why? Because that's the foundation of what it means to be a follower of Christ. God's grace and peace comes through Jesus alone. This, was, this is what's going to give unity and purpose to the church at Philippi. What is it that unites and pulls together all churches? What is it that gives us that bond together? We're all from different parts of the world. We're different parts of, of uh, the socioeconomic ladder. We're different uh, geographic, all kinds of differences. All of these things. What is it that takes that and pulls all those things together? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. It's the bond of us understanding that I was a sinner. Christ saved me. I am now a servant of the one most high, and I seek to serve him. And so do you, and so do you, and so do you, and so do you, and so do you. We're all together. We're all unified behind that. That is the purpose of the church at Philippi and to any other churches that claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's the church. Then we see that together there's a partnership in the gospel. 
right? So we, we've gathered together. That's who we're talking about, saints and overseers and deacons and all these things. We're all fellow believers who are now united together. We are partnered together in the gospel. Look at verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for all you making my prayer with joy. Circle joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. So let's go back to verse 3. Paul is in prison. He's writing the church at Philippi. As we we're going to see, uh, they had sent someone to him with some supplies, and so he's thankful for that. And the whole letter really should be read as a thank you note. Thank you so much to this church. Paul is expressing his thankfulness and gratitude for their support, and the letter, again, was written 12 years after Acts chapter 16. So then we go to verse 3. So now we see that Paul is in chains. He's in prison. Actually, technically, he's not in prison. He's under house arrest. But he's still considered to be in chains. There's still a guard. He's still being watched. And Paul is thankful. Remember the last time we saw Paul in prison? Literally, he was in prison. He was in a hole. He was in stocks. He had been beaten. And him and Silas are singing. And they're praising the Lord. And so what we see is this idea of joy is a stream, a thread that runs all the way through Paul's ministry. Joy. How is it possible for you to be beaten and then thrown into prison and then put into stocks and sing and be joyful? And then here, again, Paul's in prison. He's, in, he's chained and he is joyful because of your partnership in the gospel, he says. The church at Philippi are working together with Paul to expand the gospel. And let me ask you this question. Do you have joy in your walk with the Lord? Is there joy in your walk? Paul has joy. When he thinks of the church, he knows all the problems. He knows that they're arguing and they're, they, he knows about all of that. But in, when he thinks about them, there is joy in his life. And, his, and so when he, he prays for them. And then he's moved to thank God for them. And the process fills his heart with joy. He thinks about them. He's thankful for them. He's praying for them. They're part of his life. They mean a lot to him. Praying for others who you are a partner with in ministry, thanking them leads to joy in your spirit. We gather together on Sunday mornings. We gather together at different times of the week for our grow groups, for our Sunday school class, whatever you want to call it, that matter. We gather together in our community groups, right? Part of that is, should be a sharing of, I am engaging in trying to reach my neighbor for Christ. I'm trying to share my story with somebody at work. I'm trying to minister to this family across the street. I'm trying to do these things. That's part of what we're all doing as Christians, right? That's part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He's going to put this work before you that we are to do. We're to be sharing the gospel with other people. That's the struggle. 
right? Because I tried this and it didn't work, or I've been frustrated about this. And so you gather together and you pray and you, you're, you're, you're working out these things together. And you're praying. And that, as you know someone is praying for you, as you know someone's got your back on these things, as you know someone is, is helping you partner in these things, there's joy that's there. And so let me, here's, I've got three questions, three questions about joy I want to ask you. First off, is, is there joy in your walk with the Lord? Here's your first thing I want you to think about is, are you praying for other Christians and thanking God for them? Right? Because that will bring you joy. This is what brought Paul joy. Am I praying for them? Am I engaging with them? This idea of prayer. All right, let's go on. So our joy, when we think about church, should be linked to other believers and their struggling as we are seeking to expand the gospel. But oftentimes, our joy is not, that's not the case in the church, right? We oftentimes think or link joy with experiences, right? I come to church, I love the music, or I didn't love the music. I came to church and I loved the message or I didn't love the message. I came to church and it was too hot or it was too cold or it's too this or it's too that or it's uncomfortable. It's all about the experience of coming to church. Right? That's not what it's about. Those things will not bring you joy. Because as soon as you walk into the room, it wasn't the way you thought it was going to be and that's what's supposed to bring you joy and now you're disappointed. And it's up and it's down and it's up and it's down. But think about it this way. What if you gather together as the church and you pulled someone aside and go, hey, remember last week when we prayed about your cousin and you were going to go on this trip and, you, and we were going to try to share? How did that go? Like, how, how did it go with the blah, blah, blah? Or, or you're working across the you know, you're trying to give cookies to the person across the street. How did that go? Did you, were you able to share your story? And you're like, oh, yeah, that will bring you joy. That partnership, that joining together of people will bring you joy, not experience. But it can't just be, let me just say this, Paul links his joy with people and a common mission. There's a linking together. I want to be joyful in my walk with the Lord. So looking at Paul, Paul links his people with a common mission. You can't just have a common group of people that you hang out with that gives you the joy that Paul's talking about, right? If, if it were just about getting together as a group, there's no difference between the church and Kiwanis or Cub Scouts or some other civic group that gets together to socialize, right? What's the difference there, all right? It's the people and the mission that get joined together. Now, it also can't just be about the mission, right? I have met Christians in my life who were just out off by themselves, right? I'm all about sharing the gospel, I'm all about trying to minister, and so I'm going to just go off all by myself, and they get burnt out, and they get mad, and they get all these things, because God has designed us to be in community. You have a life experience, you have a spiritual gifting, you have lots of different things that I don't have. And you have one, and you have one, and you have one. And God gathers together the church, for a specific reason of using your gift to accomplish this and using your life experience to give to accomplish this and he puts all these things together in the church who then share the gospel and expand the gospel out so it's a combination of people and a common mission 
that we join together, that then once we begin to do that, we experience joy in our walk with the Lord. And the word partnership that's used here was used in that culture in various ways. It was used with family relationships, with friendships, with business partnerships, with if you own common property together, uh, religious organizations, all of these use that same word partnership. We're partnership, we're partnership, we're partnership. These were all considered examples of this. But Paul uses partnership six times in this gospel. We are partners, 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 six times. And it helps us to understand to those that partner in the expansion of the gospel is different than in any other partnership. Any other time where we get together, uh, it is a unique, special relationship that we have with the people as we gather together. Here's another question. Here's my second question on this idea of do you have joy in your walk? Second question. Are you engaged in the mission of reaching others for Christ? Am I engaged? Am I not engaged? Right? That is why the church exists. Bellevue Baptist Church exists to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's why we're here. If you're not engaged in that mission, you're not going to have the joy that Paul's talking about. Because it's all about an experience. It's all about something else. There's some other fake thing that you're holding on to that you're wanting to have joy through. That's not why the church exists. The church does not exist to serve you. We exist to serve the Lord and reach others for Christ. That's why the church exists. Our relationship with Christ overflows into relationship with others who have also placed their faith in Christ. You, you are a believer. I'm a believer. Our worlds then become together. We seek to all be obedient to the calling upon our lives. The gospel transforms our lives, and that transformation draws us into a unique, beautiful, and powerful community. Unlike any previous partnership that you've been a part of, even to the point of considering this group of people your family. Paul, several times throughout the gospels, refers to his brothers and sisters do you consider church people your family? Why or why not? Are you engaged in the gospel? Here's the best way to know people, all right? Because you, you say you've been coming to church for a while, you don't really know anybody. You maybe even get a little frustrated because you just haven't made any friends yet. Are you engaged in the mission of the church? Are you engaged? Are you serving and are doing things that are part of that mission? The best way that I have found to get to know people is to serve with someone. If you go on a mission trip like to New York, you really get to know people. If you go off to camp with the kids, you really get to know people, right? You just, it's, the, it's that close serving on a regular basis. Serve on the kitchen crew, you get to know people. It's just a way of building friendships is to serve together. Verse 6, Paul sees and knows all about the issues that the church is facing. Paul knows these things. This I know for sure, he says. This is important. Bellevue Baptist Church, listen. This is important. Paul says, this I know for sure, that he who began a good work in you, that's the Philippian church. He's not talking about individuals. A lot of times we like to take this and go, he who began a good work in you as though it's an individual. Paul's talking to the church. He who began a good work in you 
will bring it to completion. Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians. This partnership was being threatened by opposition from without and conflict from within. Paul is concerned. The church is concerned. Will this church be able to continue or is it just going to fall apart? Paul's like, no. He who began a good work in you will see it to completion. He who began Bellevue Baptist Church will see it to completion. God is the God that started it, and God is the God that will see it all the way to the end. Paul says, this I know for sure. He who began a good work in you will see it to completion. Intense suffering in a world hostile to the gospel, this bitter dispute between the leaders and the church was calling into question its survival, this partnership in the gospel. And Paul is saying, God is going to see it all the way to the end. I want you guys to do something with me real quick. I want you to get out your imaginary notebook. And now get out your imaginary pencil. All right, and I'm going to show you a picture up here. So the, yeah. And what we're going to do is I would like for you to sketch this picture in your imaginary notebook with your imaginary pencil. But you got it? You're drawing the circles. You're drawing the, the straw. You may even be like creative and like put it on a limb. And so when I were to go around and, and look at your sketches, it would probably look something like this, right? You've sketched it out. It looks amazing. But this is not how God sees the picture. I asked you to draw it. That's typically what we do. We look at the egg. We draw the egg. We see the nest. We draw the nest. We even get a creative and put it on a nest. And we, but this is what we see. This is our reality. And when we look at the church, we tend to see right here, right now. But if I were to say, uh, what does God's sketch look like? It would look something like this. God doesn't look at the egg. He sees the big picture. He sees the end product. When he looks at your life, he sees the same thing. He doesn't see you with all your faults and flaws and things now. He sees you with how he plans to, to grow you and mature you until you go into eternity. This is how God sees you. This is how God sees the church. He sees the big picture. He who began a good work in you, the church, will see it to completion. You say, oh, what about this? And, what about that? And what about this? That's all in God's hands. Our job is to be faithful. What has God gifted and called you to do? Do that. That's all you have to worry and focus about is what is God's calling upon my life? What am I supposed to be doing? What is the gifting? Let me serve. Let me get in there. That's what I'm going to do. Then in verse 7, he says, For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. It's not until verse 7 that we begin to see that Paul's in trouble, right? We don't even know he's in prison until we get to 7. We get a hint of what he's going through. And so Paul is writing from prison. Remember, Timothy's with him because he includes him in the, in the early part, Paul and Timothy. And the Greek word in prison here is closer to chained. And so he's waiting for an appeal from the emperor. He's already waited in Judea for uh, two years at this point. But he's expecting an answer. And he says, if we are partners in the gospel, 
It is because we are partners in grace. Because of the invincible spirit of Christ has pulled us, in spite of ourselves, out of the pit of our self-centered, self-reliance. He's made us face this ugly reality of our guilt and our helplessness and drawn us to trust in Christ. That's us. That's all of us. He's done all of that work in all of our lives. We both know of God's grace that draws us closer and it leads us to love one another. We don't base our joy on experiences. We base it on how we are interacting with other people and how we are all accomplishing the mission together. And here we see that this bonding, this a similar thing, causes us to love one another. Now, if someone is a part of our church and they say, I'm out, right? They leave because of some experience, right? I didn't, it was, it was, the lights were too bright. I'm just going to use the, the lights were too bright or it was too dark or, or whatever. That's an experience, right? If someone leaves the church over something like that, that tells me a couple of things. It tells me one, and they say, oh, I love you. I love you. No, you don't. No, you don't. Because that bond that we have together, that love one for another, has to be rooted in this idea of we are all Christians and we are all serving the, word, the Lord together. And so to just leave like that tells us they don't understand that idea. Right? You can't just walk out from a group of people that you say you love, that you have served side by side for decades because it, the lights were too bright. That makes no sense. It makes no sense. So, it's this love that should, over time, draw us closer together. And this leads us to our third thing, real quick. is the church is known for its love in verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the Christ of right, with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So now Paul prays out loud so we can hear him. He's praying here, and he's asking God for the Philippian church so that their love may abound more and more. May keep on overflowing. This perpetual flooding of love, yet more and more. But notice, it's not just love and love and love. It's also, it's like a river that has banks. It has limitations. There's two things that are on either side of this love that guide it. Knowledge, full knowledge, and all discernment, he says. So this, the, the Christian life is one of growth. Paul's not happy for people just to stay where they are. He wants them to grow and mature in their faith and take the next step, whatever that might look like. And that's, and that's what it is like to be a part of the local church, is that you should not be able just to sit and stay the way that you are for year after year after year after year. There should be someone there pushing you, saying, let's take the next step. Let's do the next thing. Let's grow in whatever that area might be. That's the Holy Spirit, of course, but it's also our fellow brothers and sisters around us saying, hey, look, you know, let's move on. Let's take the next step. And so the Christian life is one of growth. Paul, uh, because of his love for his brothers and sisters, is not content to let them stay the same. And so he prays that their love would grow, become more and more ongoing, dynamic, pure expressions of love. 
there's a philosopher, a writer, theologian named of G.K. Chesterton. He once said this, and I, I really, I really kind of resounded with me. He says, love is not blind, love is bound. And the more it is bound, the less it is blind. What does that mean? That means that I'm, a person is bound to another person by choice. I choose to love you. I bound myself to you. And the more I know about you, the more I have to make the choice to stay connected to you. Because, let's face it, we all have flaws. We all have flaws. The more I get to know you, the more obnoxious you become. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. But not really. Right? That's true, right? The, you could be presentable for a moment from afar. But then you get close and you begin to see the flaws. And that's, what, that's really what marriage is all about, is it not? I mean, the bride comes down the, the aisle, she's the most beautiful she will ever be. And then from then on, she gets even more beautiful, because Kimberly's going to watch this tape later. <laughs> but you begin to know each other, you begin to see the flaws, you begin to know the mistakes, you begin to see the bad habits. And so you have to bind yourself to them. You don't say, oh, I didn't know about this, I'm out. You, I didn't know about this, this, I'm out. No. You intentionally bind yourself to them by choice. And this is what Paul is saying to the church. He's like, I know you guys are arguing. I know there's all this strife going on. But I'm binding myself to you. I love you and I'm going to pray that you love each other more and more and more. You choose to love. And so here's the next question. Do you have joy in your walk with the Lord? Question is, how committed are you to other Christians? And I would even, and I've even thought I should substitute that word Christians with church, right? How committed are to you to your church? He says, with knowledge and all discernment. The knowledge and discernment mentioned here is in reference to other believers. There's a recognition of the will of God that is effective in the conduct of the one who knows God. Christ knows us, and in spite of our flaws, and he draws us into a closer relationship with him. In spite of the fact that you are the way that you are, I still choose to love you and partner with you in the gospel so that we may progress the mission forward. I bind myself to you. We choose to love each other. And that love gets deeper and deeper and deeper the more that we serve side by side together. That's what Paul's mentioning here. Our love for each other should cause us to push one another toward Christ, gain knowledge and discernment of Jesus. There was a time in God's people's history where they, they didn't do that. They walked away from God. They didn't encourage fellow believers to have anything to do with God. In Hosea, it says this. Hosea chapter 4. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. Right, so when the, when the prophet Hosea looked across God's people, he's like, there is no love for God. There's no steadfastness. People are just doing whatever they want to do. And no knowledge of God in the land. And as a result of that, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. 
So when you come across someone, a believer, and they're just doing whatever they want to do, and you hold them accountable, like, hold up, you, can't, you shouldn't be doing that. That's not good for you. It, that's not going to help you in your walk with the Lord, and it's also not going to help us as a group accomplish the mission. That's love. That is not judgment. That is not condemnation. That is love for you. Because love for you should encourage you to take the next step and grow in your walk with the Lord. Does that make sense? We need knowledge of Christ and discernment of his word so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless. And so when we need to make a decision, we weigh the options, right? We, I, I got to make a decision. I, I could do this or I could do this. Paul is not talking about weighing the options of good and bad, right? I need, to, I need to figure out what's the best way here between a good and a bad option. He's talking about what is the decision between a good and a good. Like either one of these things are good. And it's in the context of showing love for another person. I want to show you love. What is the most excellent way for me to show you love? The most excellent way is for you to have knowledge of God and be able to discern his word. And so the most loving thing that a person could do is to help you know who God is and to be able to, and to express, and to use that word, and to take God's, basically put handles on God's word and help you carry it in your life. To just simply accept you is part of love. That's where, again, we're binding ourselves to each other. But it's not just accepting it the way you are and pretending as though you have no flaws. It's accepting you in spite of your flaws and helping us all move forward in Christ. That's the most excellent way. So, we've got these three questions that we've looked at. How committed are you to, the, to, to Christ? Are you praying for other believers? You know, are, are, am, I, am I a part of what's going on? Am I engaged in the mission? All of these things that we've talked about. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Paul. We thank you for his writing this Philippian church. And Lord, as we have looked at these different things, Lord, I believe your Holy Spirit is moving in our hearts. And we're asking ourselves, you know, am I doing the things that have been mentioned here? Lord, I just pray that you will move in all of our hearts in this time of invitation. And Lord, there may be a person here who just realized, Lord, that they don't even have a relationship with you. And that you have been in their service working on their heart and they've and they said, I, I would like to have a relationship with Jesus. I am not a follower. I, I, I feel the weight of my sin. I'd like to be forgiven of that. And friend, if that's you, you could say a prayer something like this. Dear Jesus, I admit to you right now that I'm a sinner. I believe that you came to die for me on the cross. I confess you now as my Lord and Savior. I want to be your follower. I want to be forgiven. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Friend, if that's you.